You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastablasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week, where we discussed the optimal look-back periods for a trend-following strategy, and also touched on how Rob can essentially replicate a much bigger market universe using a much smaller set of markets kind of how some people replicate CTAs and hedge funds. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Rob and I was joined by the head of systematic strategies at Goldman Sachs, Nick Baltus, to discuss a wide range of topics when it comes to quant strategies and also some of the great research paper that he has written, one of which um, is called uh, Why the Media Often Blame Risk Parity Strategies and CTAs When Something Big Happens in the Markets. It's actually not the name, but that's how what it's about. So head over and check them out if you're um, curious after you're done listening to Rich and I today. Rich, as always, such a pleasure to have you back this week. How are things? How are things going down under yeah, very well, Niels. It was an absolutely magnificent day today. Quite unusual, but the weather was perfect, and I was, you know, I was just enjoying the entire day. But, you know, on other things, I'm, I'm, I was absolutely wrapped when I heard that um, Curzon had been liberated. So, you know, I was giving a big thumbs up to that move. But uh, of course, yesterday it was a bit of a different day with a bit of um, frenetic activity with the uh, the portfolio. So the battleship was getting hammered yesterday. So uh, anyway, how are you? Yeah, doing well. It has been a busy week, right? And uh, I'll try and summarize some of the headlines uh, now. And uh, I think this will be a fun conversation because it's, yeah, just full of of, of, of things moving around in, in the portfolio. So uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. Um, the week, of course, turned out to be all about CPI and FTX. Uh, finally, we had some downward bias uh, in the consumer price index in the US. That's not to say that prices are contracting. In fact, taking it at face value, the inflation numbers are still too high, but the rate of increase is falling, which is welcome news for consumers. Core CPI, the measure that excludes food and energy, rose 6.3% year-on-year, falling from a year-on-year increase of 6.6% last month. And on the month-over-month basis, the measure rose 0.3%, down from 0.6% last month. That is a welcome improvement and comes just in time for the Fed, I think. Coincidentally, the tightening of monetary policy has seen the rising tide floats all boats adage play out out in reverse. Before today's, oh, not the today's, but this week's um, CPI melt up, um, equities had been under selling pressure for sure uh, most of this year, and the selling has been most apparent in the darlings of the retail markets, uh, such as the FANG stocks. All are down double digits um, in 2022 with uh, Meta, the parent of Facebook, down 69% from its peak. And the best performing of the group is Apple uh, with a year-to-day loss of only 
27%. Topping the FANG losses, we also have Bitcoin, the darling of the more sophisticated retail investors. That's down about 76% uh, since last December, which of course is better than those who have lost more than 90% of their value in the last year. And with a well-known crypto exchange blowing up this week, we are once again reminded that with high returns as seen in the past few years for crypto investors and ARK investors come high risk. Interestingly enough, the old quote-unquote boring Dow Jones index is getting close to a new all-time high, only another 8% to go. The impact of the better-than-expected CPI to the markets was swift. Since the hawkish FOMC meeting, there has been substantial selling pressure on the front end of the Treasury curve. The two-year uh, note touched 4.72% on Monday as traders were braced for another 75 basis points hike in December. But within minutes of the CPI print, that bearishness evapor evaporated and the two-year note finished the week around 4.33% as traders recalibrate their rate hike expectations. Maybe this week's CPI does feel like it was the beginning of the end for inflation, but we shouldn't take much comfort in the market reaction. You only get market moves like that in a bear market, which suggests we're still in a bear market. But perhaps we should stop worrying about inflation now and start worrying about corporate earnings and deflation. Only time will tell. Anyway, Rich, let me bring you back here just to... Uh, yeah, just to talk about what have caught your attention. Maybe it's all been the last week, um, but um, how are things going with your portfolio, the battleship? And uh, it seems like there's been a few high, a little bit of high seas uh, in the last few days. Yes, it's been a turbulent, turbulent last few days. Um, you, you, the prior month I was slightly down, but um, you know uh, the last few days have certainly compounded that a bit. But uh, you know, um, so, you know, I'd been writing some very long-term powerful trends, particularly in the yen pairs, um, such as the Swiss yen and the USD yen. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, there was a lot of give back with my unrealized equity um, in those trades. But, uh, you know, despite the give backs, there was a, a bit of blue sky with Bitcoin because I was not, uh, nicely short Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, with the F FTX scandal. Um, bit, there's obviously some downside pressure on Bitcoin, which I've been taking advantage of. But apart from that, Neil, it's quite a volatile um, session. But, you know, after this spectacular year-to-date um, result, you've just got to accept that these times occur. Um, obviously, um, when these times, you know, um, when we have these spectacular trending environments, um, we are highly committed to those trends with a lot of our systems. So when the give back occurs, um, it, it usually is quite pronounced. So you just got to accept that, I think. And uh, so, um, you know, I've, I've experienced that before um, when we've talked on this podcast with Black Friday event last year and, you know, all of these different events. So, yeah, it's just part and parcel of the game we play, but uh, it's always a bit painful. But, um, yeah, it, it's dealing with what I refer to as my unrealised equity, uh, which I sort of tr treat a bit less seriously than I do to my realised equity, which is a bit different to, to a lot of people. They they like to treat equity um, all evenly, but uh, I've got a different uh, philosophy there because I like uh, betting a lot of my unrealised equity. So that that's what I'm doing to sort of bet for the, uh, hopefully, cross my fingers, the um, the enduring trends using that unrealized equity. So it's just part and parcel of my game. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree, of course. Um, I was curious, you obviously um, do things a little bit different to the way we do it. Um, you have multiple systems, for example, that's part of your diversification. Did you see, I'm just curious, uh, a lot of these different types of systems actually exiting positions uh, during a week like this? Or was it mostly just kind of, uh, as you say, giving back some open profits, but nothing really in terms of changing some of, some of them were quite severe. Like uh, I think on Spaces last night, I mentioned that uh, there was a few remaining um, Japanese yen um, trades on. But uh, the reality is when I closely looked at everything, um, I'm out of Japanese yen. So it was quite a si significant move in Japanese yen. And it's it nailed all of my six systems. So, uh, you know, but in a way, I, I, I do love the fact that uh, we have these trailing stops because I tell you what, I would hate to be in a buy and hold position with Japanese yen now, now in a position where, you know, you, you've drawdown has significantly accelerated away from you and you haven't re released any of that risk and you're still holding it. So if that, that uh, position, um, that, that adverse position perpetuates, you couldn't get yourself in severe nasty water without those risk release valves of our stops that get us out of these positions so yeah we took the hit yesterday but you know in that that process yesterday i view this as sort of a bit like releasing steam from a pressure cooker all of the gas was released yesterday so the portfolio now when i look at my portfolio i'm probably i've lost about 25 percent of our positions so i'm sitting on about 75 percent now it's degassed is what i refer to it as so, um, yeah, see where it goes from here. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, completely normal in, in, in our world to see this, even though you could say that, and, and you kind of knew that when the CPI print would come out um, better than expected because there's been so many attempts or so many uh, there's been a few attempts uh, on 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 this kind of trade of of a release of the uh, in increases of uh, interest rates in the US when would they pivot when would they stop when would they pause whatever um i uh, i have to say myself i wonder if this might not just give the fed even more kind of ammunition to uh, i mean the market reaction would give the fed more ammunition to say well hang on nothing has changed from our point of view and we're going to go back because i noticed there's like 10 FOMC people speaking next week. Um, so I have a feeling that we might hear something different. Um, but we'll see. Isn't it interesting how, you know, when we get an event yesterday, which is effectively, I, I think, off the back of the CPI, um, so you realise how correlated, the you know, our portfolios actually are, you know. So you see these moves and a lot of these trending series, which you think is are unrelated. But, you know, inevitably, they probably are correlated with, you know, this impact of the CPI. So, um, yeah, well, it, it always I, surprises me. I mean, you're absolutely right. This week, you know, we saw a lot of correlation um, after the event. But actually, I think this time around, things are maybe a, maybe a little bit different because I think the theme has this year has been one theme, and that's inflation. That's been the theme that all the trends kind of have reacted to, whether it's being, you know, uh, bonds or... Um, currencies to some extent, um, and and so on and so forth. So I think that that's probably why uh, we saw such a um, coordinated. Can can you use that word? Yes. Coordinated reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I mean, from my side, um, I would say that, of course, and we've already talked about it. When the outlook for inflation changes, like it did this week, 
Um, and when it has been the dominant driver, uh, then of course the direction of many trends um, will happen or will change. Um, and that obviously will need to lead to losses for, for trend followers. That's just how it is. And when we say losses, maybe we should just say we're giving back some of the open profits, as you rightly put. And as far as I can tell uh, from the numbers that I follow and where you, we have a little bit of access on kind of daily numbers, you know, these uh, these givebacks were well in proportion to the profits generated uh, so far this year. Um, but of course, when you drill down, uh, as you can do, as I can do, it's probably something that occurs across most markets in the portfolio. This you know, this correlation, of course, effect was was pretty uh, pretty amazing. I will say, and of course, you you focus on currencies, which we don't. But I will say, I think the currencies probably stood out, especially the yen, the Swiss franc, things like that. I mean, the yen and the Swiss franc they rallied six percent for the week against the dollar. I mean, that is pretty significant. So so there has been a lot of uh, there should be a lot of losses uh, from from that. Um, Equities, I, I would imagine that most trend followers are short equities. So I think that's probably another source of, of give back. Um, and of course, fixed income, we know that if you're a longer term trend follower, medium to longer term, you will be short, probably the whole gamut. Um, so that will be another area. Um, but it doesn't change positions or direction. I think um, we'll see when when the headlines come out in financial media saying, oh, but now trend followers are starting to go long bonds. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon anyways. Um, now, energy markets, um, kind of interesting, right? Um, because they sold off. And uh, I think, I don't know, I think it's a little bit of a question mark whether you're long or short um, uh, energies at this point. It probably depends just purely on your look back period. I think longer-term managers are still long, um, but there could be some shorts um, in shorter-term managers. And and the same, you know, with metals. I think, you know, a lot of metals um, kind of had the opposite reaction, uh, moving higher. And I think a lot of trend followers probably are short these, these uh, markets at the moment. Anyway, big reversal, completely normal. Um, and... Um, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see um, how it all plays out. My trend barometer was getting weaker during the week, actually, already. Uh, it finished the week uh, at 30, which is weak. So it's not surprising that we would expect trend followers to be down for the month. Um, so if I look at the numbers as of Thursday, so Friday, I don't know. Um, I don't think Friday was a big day. Uh, it was really Thursday where all the action was. Um Friday was also, by the way, a holiday, um, so I don't know if that had an impact in the U.S. But anyways, B-Top 50 as of Thursday was down 2.13% for for the month, still up 13, uh, sorry, 17.3. SockGen CTA index down 2.6% for the month, up 23.36. Trend index down 3% roughly, up 31.5% for the year. And the short-term traders index uh, down 0.4%, but up 12 for the year, of course, equities having a good month. Uh, MSCI World up almost five and down 17 for the year. World Government Bond Index had a final a little bit of good news. So they're up now 80 basis points for the month, but still way in the red for the year. And the S&P Total Return Index down about 1% for the month only, uh, up, uh, sorry, down 19.68% for the year. So, but as I mentioned, which surprised me, I didn't, I didn't know this until I saw it this morning. The Dow Jones actually is only like 8% away from its all-time high. That's pretty good.
All right, we have a couple of questions. One of them from Down Under. Um, so let's start with that. Daniel writes in, thanks for the work you and your team do on the podcast. I look forward to it every week. I also enjoyed the interview with Annie Duke and I love her new book. Now for the question. The panel has talked many times about trading different speeds and using different look-back periods. Uh, can I ask how these different speeds relate to Rich's pant sizing? <laughs> I think he mentioned that the position sizing uh, and stops were unchanged with the different lookbacks, i.e. the pants were the same size. I trade three different lookbacks, but I have looser pants for the longer lookbacks, wider stops for smaller position size. The question is, should the pants be the same for all lookbacks or should the pants be tighter or looser for uh, or looser for different lookbacks? All I just want to say before you answer, Rich, is if someone comes to the podcast for the first time and hears a question like this where we talk about pant sizes, they must be confused what the hell this podcast is all about. So, um, but there we are. I think hopefully most of our listeners will know that when we talk about pants, it's kind of, you know, back from this a quote we had from uh, Perry Kaufman that loose pants fits all. Or, yeah. yeah it's, it's not an episode of Weight Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. But okay. That, no, that was, all right. Yeah, good question from Daniel. And uh, good to see another Aussie um, putting in the questions. But uh, look, in relation to the pant size, um, I think Daniel might have been a bit confused because let's say that um, I have six trading systems, all with different lookbacks. So, you know, I might be spanning in my lookbacks from, say, a 50-day lookback up to about a 300-day lookback. Lots of different types of trend-following models, but that's a genuine sort of lookback period I engage um, to, you know, have what I regard in my sort of speak as my short-term, my medium-term, and my long-term holds. So, Daniel, you're right. Each of those models has loose pants. Now, so what I mean by that is that um, the parameters that are used for each of those trend-following models are few in number. I, I'll have a couple of parameters used for my entry criteria. I'll have a parameter for my stop. I'll have a parameter for my trailing stop. So, you know, in general, I'm using about four to five parameters at maximum for each system. And so the less parameters or less variables you use for your system, uh, the greater um, you can respond to degrees of freedom in price. So um, with less variables, the less you constrain um, the way price needs to move to stay within the constraints of your system. So, um, you know, if you could imagine, um, you know, if you go back to the mathematics class and you look at the simplest form of curve, that's where we've got three variables. And it's expressed by that equation, y equals mx plus c, three variables there. So um, that allows a great degree of freedom because of the simplicity of the variables. But as you add parameters, that you effectively are developing a much more complex parameter space, such as a, a polynomial distribution or a different sort of curve. So if you can imagine, when you require um, your, your system um, that trades into the future to adopt to a complex curve or to a complex function, um, you because if, if that future doesn't exactly replicate the past, there is a very large error function associated with that future if you use a highly complex, many-variable system. So that's why 
my loose pants relates to my simplicity of my systems, but each of the systems I deploy with these varying range of lookbacks um, has only a few variables in it, um, which is this loose pants phenomenon. So, but you are right. So, um, with my what I regard as my shorter term systems, my initial stop and my trailing stop, which are both using ATR based um, measures, and the reason I use ATR for my my stops and my trailing stops is that it allows me to normalize that trading system to any liquid market. Um, so that means I can trade Bitcoin the same way as I trade a currency, is the same way as I trade a, a, an ETF, is the same way as I trade a, another thing. We we are normalizing um, the system using ATR as a means to normalize it to any market. So I can trade every market the same way with my models. So um, if I use a short-term look-back model, um, the, the ATR-based initial stop and the ATR-based trailing stop are typically tighter than if I'm using my medium to long-term models, which have a much more sort of wider initial stop and trailing stop. Um, so the combination of those three different models are targeting different facets of a trend from short-term momentum impulses to sort of uh, more sort of wandering trend cycles that um, have a great degree of freedom in their expression. Um, so all of these different um, loose pants models are, are effectively trying to capture different aspects of, of trend, which we know can occur in many different forms. So that that's about it from me. How about you, Niels? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, explanation. And, uh, but also I, I just want to say that, um, some listeners might think, why do we get so many questions about position sizing? Because actually the next question is about position sizing as well, but from a different angle. And, and I, I just want to say that I think this is one of the most important parts of what we do, uh, both whether at, it's at entry or during the lifetime of, of, the, of the trade. Um, and I think it sometimes comes as a surprise to people when, when at least when I talk to them about, you know, what's what's that's the main thing we kind of worry about and do, and and that is um, we we are risk managers. We don't worry about the performance of our systems because we don't control the performance, but we do have influence on the risk, and that's why we spend so much time thinking about how what's the best way of managing these different types of risks um that uh, that we have um as as someone with you know 50 60 100 200 different positions at any one time so so in, in a sense i i like the fact that people are picking up on the importance of position sizing and asking questions about it um because it is really critical to the success of any type of investment by the way um so yeah well, let's move on to the next question. Now, you that might be an Aussie asking you a question. I can't say if the next uh, question comes from a fellow Dane, um, but he is called Henrik, and uh, which is the same name as my father, actually. So he could be Danish, but I don't know. Anyways, Henrik writes, Niels, thanks for the excellent podcast. Here's a question for you and your guest, especially Richard. Whenever it's a natural topic to discuss, it's on position sizing. In general, I very much support the notion of pursuing wide diversification in terms of traded instruments and in doing so, increasing the possibility of catching outliers. 
However, when investigating the effect of different position sizing schemes on my own system, it seems as though my main trend-following system, which is a moving average system with some statistical bells and whistles, performs the best that it has the highest KGAR when I implement a Kelly sizing scheme. Half Kelly or quarter Kelly are also better than the regular top 50 scheme I employ. It actually also performs the best in terms of risk-adjusted returns with a full Kelly sizing scheme. I find this a little bit puzzling. I should note I only trade stocks. How do your guests think about the trade-off between optimal sizing, Kelly variation to catch big big, big fish, and using a wider net or a wide net to catch many small fish? Okay, Professor Brennan, it's up to you now to um, explain what we mean or what Henrik means by Kelly before I think we answer the question or you answer the question. Yes. So um, it's a very interesting question from Henrik. And um, the the Kelly criterion um, is a very clever mathematical formula uh, that effectively optimizes position sizing or optimizes your bet uh, to maximize your geometric returns. So it's looking at um, the, the compound annual growth rate, how to maximize that uh, through the most effective way through a probability sizing application through the application of this formula, the Kelly criterion formula. But it's based on a couple of underlying assumptions. Um, the assumptions are, <clears throat> because it's um, determining the optimal um, um, bet for um, geometric um, returns over the long term, it demands um, stable returns. It demands an exact knowledge of um, expected returns. Um, so the method used to construct the Kelly formula is a bit like the expectancy formula. It uses um, your historical uh, win percentage, your loss percentage, uh, your um, return to risk relationship for each of your trades. And it's requiring those um, statistics to be very stable. Um, so um, with the stability of those statistics, then with a degree of confidence, you can apply this aggressive position sizing formula to maximize your geometric returns. Now, because it does maximize your geometric returns, it is a very aggressive formula. So there is no room for error in that formula. In other words, if there is a degree of wandering between your win rates and your return to risk relationships over the course of time, uh, the Kelly criteria can get you into deep water when that stability of returns is not delivered. So during periods of uncertainty, um, where um, the relationship between those statistics used in the formula alters, or during what we call, you know, uh, the adaptive markets where um, there is non-stationarity and the, the, the regimes change, those historical um, uh, values that are used to calculate Kelly are, are also going to change. But what that will do is it'll put you into high risk territory because you're using a very aggressive position sizing method to maximize your returns. So um, a lot of people therefore say, right, well, I'll compensate for that by using a half Kelly application. In other words, reduce the, the uh, result by a half to water down the degree of leverage achieved by my position sizing um, using Kelly. Um, but 
for, for trend followers like me, where we are dealing uh, with returns out in what I refer to as the tail region of the distribution of returns, in that region, um, there isn't things such as a stable mean. There isn't things such as a, a stable standard deviation. Uh, things get quite chaotic out in those tail regions, and that's what leads to these anomalies, which you know defy statistical reason. So when you are targeting those particular edges and in that particular region of the distribution of returns, the Kelly criteria or application of it gets you into severe deep water. So I avoid that entirely. So the way I therefore adopt my position sizing method is a standard, very small risk bet for every single um, um, return stream in my portfolio. They're all equally weighted according to how I do it. And um, a, a very small bet size, and I'm I'm using more the 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 the, the uh, magnification um, abilities of the portfolio itself to do all of my lifting or my compound annual growth rate over the long term. I'm um, the way that uh, my portfolio hunts for these outliers and improves my risk-adjusted returns. Um, is is at the portfolio level that's achieving that rather than at the discrete position sizing level that Kelly's dealing with. So that's the way I deal with it, but I, I hope I've explained that a bit. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe we can still address the question from uh, Henrik to see if there's, you know, why that he might get these better re uh, uh, results. But let me just ask you one question. Just uh, I'm really just curious here. Could you, will Kelly just increase the quote-unquote look back of the Kelly calculation so that those values that you input, such as win-loss ratios and whatever, become more stable and less volatile, kind of a little bit like with volatility, right? Where if we use too short a volatility measure, we can have quite big differences, but then that's probably why we also use a longer-term volatility measure too. When things go out of whack, uh, we don't get either... Too little leverage. Well, I, we could get too little leverage actually, because if if the shorter term is is higher, we would use that one. But if it's if volatility goes too low, like it did in say fixed income markets um, during this last five years, at some some points we had almost zero volatility in some of these short term contracts. Um, it would be wiser to say, well, I always use this longer term level of volatility as my floor, so I don't end up with silly position sizing. So I, I was just curious, could you think about Kelly in the same way? Look, I'd, I'd say no. And the reason is this. Let, let's say we increase the sample size to a 30-year period where we think that we've got a sufficient sample size that it offers me stability. Well, it gives me these single statistics that I input into the Kelly criterion formula, such as a win rate, etc., but it's not recognising the regime changes that occur during that 30-year sample. So in these different regimes, you get a variation away from the average of the entire result. And because it's a highly leveraged position size formula, that, that deviation from the, the total or the, the, the average over the entire sample size is enough to really get risk of ruin happening. So I, I don't do it that way. Um, and it's because of these this sort of non-stationarity of markets. These regime changes fundamentally change the character of the markets 
to produce different ratios effectively. So you know, even though you think with a large sample size, it it it, it starts approximate you know approximating a mean, a standard deviation, etc. That's not really the way real markets work if they've got this leptokurtic nature, these tail regions and these peaks. If it was normally distributed, not a problem. But because we know that markets aren't normally distributed and they have these extreme variations and different um, different regimes, uh, it causes problems in using formulas such as this. Even though it's a very clever formula, it, it's an issue. So, 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 so we need to label this episode, don't try this at home. Don't try <laughs> this at home. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Well, now, since Henrik asked that he's surprised by his uh, result, what you're saying is that maybe he shouldn't be surprised because if you do it over, say, maybe a certain asset class, it could be also the fact that he's doing it over a certain period of time that it just happens to have worked really well. Or is there something else that might There's something lead? else. Okay, there's something else. That's Yeah, so, so that. what's happening is... Um, We'll get into this discussion a bit um, in this episode, but um, with con convergent types of trading um, activities or convergent trading styles, they are looking for um, these um, these very sort of um, uh, predictable, stable regimes. So it is very useful if you're using a convergent methodology to apply things such as the Kelly criteria, but you do have to be careful when that regime changes. So over extended periods of time during periods of market stability, the Kelly criteria is an excellent um, you know, um, position sizing method to use for convergent methods. I'm just saying for trend following methods that are targeting the chaotic region of that tail region where there is no stability, don't do it. I, but I but, do say use it possibly for convergent or or, or variations of killing. But 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 Henrik writes specifically that he does do trend following. This is why this is why he's kind of so he's kind of using a divergent strategy uh, as far as I can tell. He's only applying it to equity, so I don't know if that has an impact. Uh, and again, if you were looking at this maybe for on the last ten years where equities generally were going up uh, most of the time, I don't know. I mean. I think he's surprised, uh, or or um, or at least that's what he writes. Um, but we, we maybe know it that, has um, to do with the universe he's, he's look, trading. I yes, when people look at the equities markets, you know, indices and things like that, we a lot of people say that uh, they have a mean reverting character. I do agree with that. In general, there is a lot of mean reversion in equity markets. So. You know, maybe it's a feature of that. I don't know. And I, I'm not sure about what model he's using um, and whether he had classified as trend-following like ours or different or whatever. He so. says a main, he says a, a, a trend-following system, moving average system with some statistical bells and whistles. I mean, again, of course, it's impossible for us to answer specifically yeah. for Henrik because we don't know his system. Um, so, so I appreciate your, your views and your insights, and I hope Henrik will... Take what he can from that, and uh, of course, um, you know, understand that we we can't ask uh, or answer specifically when we don't know uh, how the system is designed. All right, let's move on because you brought along some, as usual, some great topics that we're going to dive into. Of course, trend following related, um, and um, and so I'm gonna. Just give you the floor, and hopefully I'll 
I'll keep uh, keep up with you, and maybe I have a a, a, a comment or two along the way. But uh, I know you have it all planned and laid out. So uh, over to you, Rich. Okay. So, Niels, I'd like to go back to the Alex Grayson and Katie Kaminsky sort of story um, in their great book, um, Trend Trading with Managed Futures, A Search for Crisis Alpha. And I know um, in, in the discussions that we've had over the many months since that great book was released, we have questioned this ability for trend following to offer crisis alpha. And we tend to say, well, we know that it's uncorrelated, um, that's about as far as we can go. But what I'd like to do in this is, is dig into at least the last 22 years of um, equity market performance and bond market performance, et cetera, to look at how trend following performed using the... So we'll use the Top Traders Unplugged Trend Following Index as a proxy for general trend followers, and we'll compare and contrast that to periods of adversity in the um, stock market um, using the US stock market as a proxy, S&P 500 total return index, and also periods of boom time, because something is really interesting that comes out of that. So in general, we know that um, trend following, um, by virtue of its extensive diversification, um, is typically uncorrelated to any single asset class. And that's understandable because, you know, um, are we correlated to equities? Well, no, we, we invest in equities, we invest in commodities, we invest in, um, you know, bonds, we invest in fixed income or, or uh, currencies, currencies. etc. Yeah. Um, bit We invest in cryptocurrencies even to a degree. So some we of invest... Us. Some of us. Yeah, invest some in of it. us. Some <laughs> of us. But um, we have wide um, asset class um, diversification and also we diversify with our systems. But... Are we correlated um, to any single asset class? Well, no, we're not by virtue of this extensive diversification. We can certainly say over the long term that we are uncorrelated. So if I take the last 22 years and I look at the level of correlation of the TTU index against, say, the S&P 500, I see when I look at it now, I see that um, the we are at the minus 0.1% correlation to the S&P 500. Very, very low correlation. And so we say it is uncorrelated. But one of the things is, remember that is a st single statistic. So it's saying over that 22-year period, it is uncorrelated. Um, but when we drill down into these periods of adversity and these periods of boom time, we see something funny going on. So in periods of adversity, we see what we refer to as negative correlation going on. So during these sustained periods of adversity, like when we look at the S&P 500, we see that, that the tech collapse, um, I think it was 2002, 2003 or whatever. So we, yep. we saw the, um, the equity markets declining significantly. At that same time, the TTU trend following index was rising sharply. So it was negatively correlated to that relationship. The next major event we had was 2008 GFC. Once again, we see the TTU TF index being negatively correlated to equities as equities were being smashed during that period. We saw the significant growth. And also, when we look at, there are about, over that 22-year period, there's really only about five key periods of adversity for the equities market. We've had a stellar run for the equities market, but 
Um, back in, uh, I think, 2018, we had the Trump trade wars. Just before that, we got a little blip, which we refer to as Volmageddon back in February 2018. But we don't really take that into account because in the significance of that on the equity market, even though on the day it was a short, sharp move, um, it was not significant in terms of looking back now and the impact it had on the equity market. But we also saw, of course, a COVID um, decline in the equity market. And and the most recent one has been this magnificent decline we've had uh, leading to building drawdowns um, from January through to current day associated with the Ukraine war, um, China slowdown, massive rising inflation, etc. So we had the, we, we've got this period now of declining equity returns, even though last couple of days with CPI coming off the heat a bit, uh, we see a significant snapback to a degree. But in general, um, the last six months have been very unfavourable for equities. Now, in all, in all, there were five instances there. Now, when we look at the performance of the TTU trend following index during those periods of adversity, we see that four out of the five periods, we had negative correlation, clear negative correlation. And the good thing is that, of course, this um, this year, this calendar year, we've had a significant negative correlation to the equity market, and hence why trend-following programs have re received some of their biggest returns they've had in their history over this year-to-date performance. So that's a that's a story about adversity. So we see that in four out of five of these instances, we actually were negatively correlated. So even though the total statistic is saying we're uncorrelated, we know that during these periods of adversity, four out of five were negatively correlated. So where does the necessary positive correlation come from that lifts that ratio back to an uncorrelated relationship? And we see that in the boom periods of the equity market. So when we go to um, the returns over um, the boom, and so a good example is when the equity market was significantly increasing after the tech bubble collapse from 2003 up to 2008, well, trends were also there. Uh, Trend-following programs were also increasing. We were beneficiaries as well as the equity markets were beneficiaries post the um, dot-com collapse um, up to the GFC. Another um, significant period of growth, um, both where equity markets and TTU trend following index was positively correlated as opposed to negatively correlated, was in 2011, basically the resurgence after the GFC. And then we see in um, you know 2014 to 2015, we had a significant positive correlation with the, the um, stock market. Uh, good growth in the stock market, but... Um, really good growth in the TTU trend following index uh, up to 2014. And then more recently, everything up until December of 2021, so the period from around about 2020 to December 2021, this is before the adversity started impacting the equity markets, both the equity markets and the TTU trend following index were experiencing significant growth. So in this case, we talked about in periods of adversity, we had four out of five instances. Well, here we had in, in the periods of boom, we had four clear instances where there was a positively correlated relationship. So even though we say that um, statistically it's uncorrelated, there is something going on in the markets themselves 
During these periods of significant boom and significant bust, where there is a degree of causal correlated impacts going on between the trend following performance and the equities market. And th so that's what we want to dig into. What is what is the reason for um, this? You know, we, we not only provide protective cushioning for periods of adversity, it's been demonstrated four out of five times in 22 years. So that's great. But, you know, bonds have also provided a degree of protective cushioning until the breakdown of the um, the, um, the the cushioning relationship, which occurred uh, in uh, this this financial year, where we saw the decoupling and now the positive correlation between bonds and equities. So prior to that, over the last twenty years, there was a degree of cushioning by bonds. But we've got to remember this: bonds um, as an asset class. Uh, that they have um, predictable returns and their returns don't offer significant what I call lifting power for the portfolio. They do provide a cushioning effect, at least they have demonstrated that over the last 20 years, but now they are no longer even providing the cushioning uh, effect, but uh, they don't provide any lifting power. So where I say trend following is superior, at least in my opinion, as an allocation measure to um, with with equities, they not only provide this cushioning effect uh, through um, they come to the rescue when you most need it during when equity markets are in adversity. Plus, they offer you know bonanzas during boom periods where um, you know the fear of missing out is making everyone die for um, the markets. We're also experiencing those strong trending regimes. But because of that um, that positive story or the positive correlated relationship during boom times and the negative correlated relationship during adversity, in total, trend following offers this big lifting power to the overall portfolio. So it goes one step further to what bonds have traditionally been doing. And it's not only provided this cushioning impact, but it's also lifted the equity curve. So, so far, what do you think? I think that's a great uh, description. It's important to understand. I've always referred to it as conditional correlation. Um, and 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 you could say that actually with bonds, you could say the condition is pretty simple. <laughs> it's probably focused around where is inflation um, heading. Um, but you're right with trend following because we do have – um, you know, exposure to many of these uh, other wonderful uh, types of assets and markets, um, they have more, um, they have just have more strings to play on, so to speak, uh, in delivering both the cushion and the lift. Uh, and I think that's a great way of explaining it. And actually, it's a really good thing to maybe we do ourselves a disservice by just saying, oh, but we're uncorrelated, right? Maybe we should explain much more about, well, we're negatively correlated when you need that and we're positively correlated when you need that. Um, the, funny part, the funny part is that often, oh, actually, very interestingly, um, and, and here, uh, you know, there have been talk about, and I think some managers have done this in their programs, where they say, well, I'm not going to go long equities because my investors, they already have that long exposure. And of course, I don't agree with that, right? We should we should design um, the best product we can design. And to your point, 
actually that includes that we need to be positively correlated from time to time with the rest of someone's portfolio. There's nothing wrong with that. The other thing we've talked about in the past, Rich, is that we actually also, even though we talk about diversification, <laughs> we also need to accept that when we make the most money, like 2022, we are actually somewhat concentrated in our in our bets because they're all driven by one or two themes, and that's okay as well. It's But because we have all the flexibility, because we have the ability to adapt, which a bond doesn't have, it has no ability to adapt, it's just the bond. It, it makes it... And of course, <laughs> the whole reason why you and I have, you know, loved this space so much as we as we do, um, it, it has this amazing power to be, um, I don't know what the word is, but it can be um, a, di- a different helper uh, with, you know, with different um, powers, let's call it that. Yes. It can have different yes. powers at different times. That's right. And, and look, the, the reason... We've set upon this this story so far in this podcast is like I want to set and trail this narrative to explain why there is this positively correlated relationship during adversity, or sorry, uh, during boom times, and why there's a negatively correlated relationship during adversity. And this is where we 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 start going back to the old Jean Philippe Bouchard um, phenomenon of trader impact. There is something that is occurring during these periods of extreme. So when we're talking about these periods of boom, we're talking about um, the significant fear of missing out syndrome. So we're talking about behavioural tendencies that change the nature of the distribution in terms of fear and greed. Something happens outside of what I call stable, predictable markets, uh, which are, uh, you know, um, something occurs with the nature of the market itself uh, in these periods of extreme. And that's why we have this positive and negative correlated relationship. Because as we've talked about, I believe the most edge we're getting in our trend following programs is associated with the tail behavior of those market distribution of returns. And if we understand what we mean by that, we're talking about the extremities the left and right tails, the extremities of price action, there's something going on which is giving um, these significant trending regimes which we are therefore capitalising on. So, of course, we're talking about what is causing this enduring nature of trends out in these periods of extremity. There's something going on there that's different to the nature of trends that occur in much more stable, predictable regimes. There's something driving the impetus and the momentum of trends out in these extreme areas. And what is it? So the reason, before we look at the what is it and why it occurs, the first thing we've got to understand is the systems we deploy are specifically configured to target directional trends. So um, our trading rules, we, we cut losses short and let profits run through design statements. And the way we do that is through uh, you know, our small initial bet, our initial stop and our trailing stop, which are effectively design constraints that therefore say price needs to move um, within these design constraints to um, be classified as a trend by our system. So, you know, we might deploy lots of different systems and each one of our systems is saying, is having their own definition of trend. 
Um, we're, we're, we're standing back saying, let the systems work that out. They, that short-term system can call that a short-term trend. This medium-term system can call it that. But these design constraints configure how that, that, um, that trend is defined. And when, when price moves outside those constraints, it closes that trend definition down. And then other trend definitions of our different systems might still be alive or closed or whatever, depending on how price moves. But we also trade both long and short with our systems. That's incredibly important because we're saying, you know, when we're dealing with left and right tail events, we're, we're saying that they are agnostic as far as the, the directional significance. They can be long or they can be short. So capitalize on both opportunities because it's not only beneficial for um, to um, for your, your wealth building process, but it's also very beneficial for some correlation benefits at the portfolio level when you are trading both long and short. But that, that's sort of at the portfolio level. At the moment, we're talking about the system design stage. So capital protection is a priority. That's why we always cut losses short. And we don't deploy these profit targets. Well, at least I don't. Um, so I only use these trailing exits, which means that potentially um, any one of my systems uh, can ride that directional trend for as long as it takes um, until um, the system says that trend's over. And so potentially you leave yourself open to unlimited upside with those, that design consideration. So that's the first thing. We Trend followers shine during uh, adversity and during periods of boom. If there are trends in these regimes, these significant anomalies or outliers in these, these regimes of fear and greed, dominated by fear and greed, can be significant and our, our systems are deliberately configured to um, capture that directional nature of those trending series. So what the, that design statement does is it produces positive skew um, at, at the trade distribution level. So typically what we find, we cut losses short, so we never, um, we never allow ourselves to be victims of what we call a left tail event as far as our trades, so we are skewing our distribution of trade returns to lots of small losses. We know we get lots of small losses, but leaving itself open to potential unlimited upside. And that skews our trade distribution to have this um, big positive skew. Now, that is a symptom of our design statement that we impregnate into our systems. Um, so we also find that the when we look at the trade histogram of of Returns. So when we look at um, our, our histogram of trade results produced by our trend-following systems, we find that um, the bulk, you know, we, we might get um, a 40% a loss rate, oh, sorry, a 60% loss rate. Um, and so we have lots of small, what I refer to as lineal losses, um, lots of small losses. That therefore um, creates this um, significant um, impact um, you know, close to the mean of the distribution of our trade returns, but we get a lot of small whipsaws uh, in our trade distribution. Now, um, what we find, because of the unlimited upside potential, we find that um, even though we have, a say, a 40% win rate, we find that the real big things that move the needle of our total wins is about 5 to 10% of our trades. Um, the rest of the wins are effectively offsetting those many small losses. So, um, you know, about 90% of our trades is what's necessary to keep us afloat, to, to stop us sinking. Um, 
the 5 and 10% of those big outliers are what really moves the needle and what gives lifting power. So when I was talking about the, what, what lifts is the lifting power of the top traders unplugged trend following index, it's this impact of outliers in our trade distribution. Um, so that's the system side of it. So the next step is not only um, do we have uh, these systems that are deliberately configured for um, capturing trends, but now we've got to move to the second very important aspect of trend following, which is diversification. Um, so um, really, uh, diversification is essential for trend followers. Now, we all know the benefits that diversification brings in the ability to bring together uncorrelated return streams together. And so the offsets produced by that those um, that ensemble of return streams produces a smoother uh, equity curve at the portfolio level when you consolidate all of those individual return streams. But we've got to remember that uh, with our trend-following systems applied to each individual market, and we might be trading many, many markets, say 60 markets or so, um, these outliers are infrequent and few and far between. However, so but we might have you know two to three outliers in one return distribution, you know maybe no outliers in another return distribution, five in another, four in another, or whatever. When you do this across sixty, you find that um, the outliers in the um, portfolio or the ensemble of return streams. They are not what I call coincident. In other words, they're not all in the location, same location of the portfolio distribution of returns. We've got, say, the euro offering outliers at a particular location, um, say, in June 2014. We've got um, the, you know, London sugar. We've got commodities. All of these outliers that occur in these series are not necessarily, we don't want them to be all located at the same location in time and space in our portfolio distribution. We actually want them to be widely distributed throughout the entire time series of our portfolio. So what that does is that lifting power we're talking about, therefore, allows um, optimal compound growth over time because it's continuously offering lifting power rather than being concentrated in locales across the um, the time series. So whilst we do find there is this concentration effect in periods such as um, 2008, where we find that there's a lot of correlated markets all doing the same thing, so we find that our portfolios massively increase uh, in equity because all of the outliers are coming at the same time. We, we often find that in periods of adversity, but in periods of boom time, uh, we often find that the outliers are quite distributed throughout the time series. So the combination of this, the combination of this is therefore giving us the ability to not only catch outliers, which is our modus operandi, as, as increased diversification allows us to increase the frequency of outliers in our distribution. There's no question about that. So three outliers here, five outliers here, four outliers here, three outliers here. When you look at that over a 60 uh, market portfolio, you've got a large number of outliers. You're, you've hunted well for those outliers, but also by virtue of the systems we deploy and the way markets work, a lot of them are quite well distributed throughout the time series. So that's why we find that when we compile our diversified portfolios, we find they're quite smooth and we get a, 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 a false... Uh, impression of how easy it's been. 
we see this magnificently rising equity curve that we think there's really been no problems throughout that, that entire time series. But the reality, when we get into the detail of each of the individual markets, we see it's been a bumpy, volatile ride. Um, and that's the nature of this game. Um, it's a bit deceptive when we bring it together as a portfolio because it hides the story of the pain that's embedded in that story. But it's there, trust me. So um, yeah. before I get on to that next stage, I'll, I'll stop here. What do you think so far? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think another way of thinking about this uh, is just that when, when and, and we've talked about this um, over the years, and that is, that sometimes we see markets that don't do anything for us for a long time, right? We, for example, currencies, I think for the last 15 years before this year, were probably not really producing any returns. I mean, depending on your system and to look back, but long-term trend following over currencies because the regime was not that conducive for, for currencies. Um, we know a market like Cocoa is notorious for, for, uh, for, for things. But then... Um, you could say you could have said exactly the same about short-term interest rates for the last five years prior to 2022 because interest rates were pretty much zero in the developed world. And so there were no real opportunities per se for a trend follower. And then you look at how much money has been made in short-term interest rates from a trend following perspective in 2022. And you think, yeah, that's exactly why I never consider taking these markets out of my portfolio. So what you've explained very elegantly, um, we see play out all the time, really, when you take a step back. Yes. And look, what I'd like to to bring up is, is something that I think is, um, is um, particularly attributable to trend following, and you might not necessarily see it with other techniques. So we all know about this ability of correlation offsets at the portfolio to improve risk-adjusted returns. And this is because they're attacking the drawdowns of the um, the individual return streams and there's offsets being provided that reduce the, the impact of those drawdowns to create this smoothness. So we know that is a, a fundamental principle of um, portfolio diversification and why we like to bring together uncorrelated return streams together because it produces this, this dampening effect of volatility and, and smooth returns. So that's why the 60-40 the portfolio has chosen to use bonds, which doesn't have much lifting power, but it has been a good cushioning impact for the last 20 years to dampen the volatility um, of the equity portfolio, the US equity portfolio. So we know this principle. But something that is, um, I think, um, uh, particularly attributable to trend following is not many people know this. Trend following programs, because they're attacking outliers, and it's the, the difference between these non-linear outliers that are many orders of magnitude greater than the linear losses. What it's doing by increasing the relative frequency of outliers or non-linear anomalies in our distribution, it's also increasing the compound annual growth rate of our diversified portfolio. So when you go back to you know the typical use of Markowitz with the efficient fish and frontier, you typically find that KGAR is never improved through diversification, but what is improved is volatility. But what you find with trend following, because it's attacking these nonlinear anomalies, is it's actually also improving the outliers or the lifting power. And that's why we're seeing the TTU trend following index 
lifting well above the S&P 500. That's what's giving it this lifting power. It's just nonlinear anomalies through this technique that's hunting for these outliers. So we're getting now to the, the, the real reason for, for why, what is it during periods of uncertainty, during periods of boom, that's actually causing trends. We know we've got systems and diversification principles that can capture these trends, but what is it that's causing markets to trend? And that's where um, we, we're going to tie this back to, um, you know, this feature of um, markets being, um, uh, they're not normally distributed. I think we, we accept that any of our liquid markets over the long term, when we, we look at the, the nature of that, that, um, that sample using a histogram, we find that while being close to a normal distribution, it typically has these left and right tails and it has this peak. Now, the nature of the, this leptokurtic distribution that is produced by these liquid markets. And so when people say, as a trend follower, what is your prime thing you can, one of the things is we must trade liquid markets. And that's because when we look at these very large data samples, we see this leptokurtic signature embedded in all of our liquid markets. There's something in the behavioral tendency of participants in the market that create these features that um, create this correlation impact in the market data that makes it non-normal in nature. So when we look at a, a normal distribution, let's, let's think of a game of chance like flipping a coin, a, an, an unbiased coin when we flip that coin, heads or tails. And we, we're doing the count of the number of consecutive tails or the number of consecutive heads that that flip coin gets. When we plot that through a histogram, because each event is independent in nature and not causally connected to the prior event, we find that the, the sequence of consecutive heads or tails actually plots a normal distribution. So a normal distribution implies that markets are totally random, there is no causal correlation in the market data, and they are efficient in nature. But we know that there are periods of time where markets shift from efficient markets out into more extreme regimes, such as we've experienced over the last six months uh, with um, uncertainty. When uncertainty prevails, uh, we find that we get these tail uh, events occurring outside of the region of the normal distribution. And we also find that there are periods of time um, we've experienced with, um, with the great Fed put uh, from 2000 and following the GFC right up to 2019-20. We're also experiencing this, this correlated regime which creates these, these peaks around the equilibrium of the distribution. So... What this does is it's signifying that there are, in, in quantitative terms, just looking at price. So we're not looking at the edge through fundamental investing. We're not looking at the edge through lots of different um, um, factors. What we're doing is here is saying, what is the edge available through um, price action? And there are really two forms of edge. There's a, a, an edge from convergent practices, which is um, based on the principle of targeting the edge that resides at the, um, you know, the around the equilibrium of the distribution of market returns, where we get this peak that extends beyond the normal distribution. And we're talking about divergent techniques that are focused on the left and right tails. So the way it boils down, so when we say to ourselves, all right, let's, let's accept the fact that there are two broad techniques to extract 
this edge from price data convergent to divergent. So, so the, the, the question is, in this zero-sum game we call speculation in these markets, why is it that um, trend followers do exceptionally well during these periods of uncertainty? And what I'd like to, to say is this. So because convergent techniques are based around the premise that price reverts to an equilibrium, the vast majority of, of trading um, techniques and investment techniques deployed by participants are convergent in nature. So a good example is, you know, fundamental investors, uh, they, they um, use this concept called um, the, the intrinsic price. They calculate the intrinsic price level. They then look at where price currently is in relation to that intrinsic price level. And their assumption is it will revert to that intrinsic price level. That is a convergent technique. So Warren Buffett, um, with his um, uh, anal value, value analysis, is effectively applying convergence here on the principle that he knows where price theoretically should be, where it is now, it's going to revert to that. That's a convergent premise. It's a, a, a predictive premise in that it's assuming that um, where price is now is not going to be where it's going to be in the future. It's going to be back at this equilibrium point. Um, so these con uh, other forms of, of convergent technique, the majority of technical analysis is based on the principle of repeating patterns in the market. Now, the reason for these repeating patterns in the market is because of the predictable nature of the market itself. Now, what this predictability is all concerned with is this this period this position of equilibrium in the market this period of stability in the market where there are these regular repetitive oscillations that create these patterns that we know um, are sort of indicative uh, if we see these patterns we know what ultimately price should do uh, in response to those patterns so once again a large proportion of technical analysis uses convergent methods based on the principle of market stability, predictability, these oscillations that they try to exploit. Also, high-frequency trading is another technique that is essentially a mean-reverting technique based on extreme activity, um, you know, uh, extracting this exploitable arbitrage from this predictable nature of the market. And of course, we know central banks have been deploying um, this this mean reversion regime where they've been buying the dips and selling the tips with their practices to try and stabilize the market around an equilibrium. They're trying to prevent the market from going out into these tail regions. They're trying to suppress volatility, make it more predictable, make it more stable. And of course, due to the significant impact of central bank intervention, it's therefore encouraged this huge growth and blossoming of convergent models. So, so many of the models out there are convergent. And when we look at, when we fundamentally boil down all of the different trading and investment practices, we realize that about 90% of participants are convergent participants. They all exert what we call a convergent force to the market. So when markets are stable and predictable, op op operate around an equilibrium, we get a lot of these predictive uh, methods that are exploiting the arbitrage from that stability. Now, all of those competing pressures are coming from lots of different directions. And if you can imagine all of these competing forces working together, it actually stabilizes things from the competing forces that are coming together. It's forcing things towards an equilibrium. 
And so this is why, this is, this is what we're referring to is this convergent premise. The trader impacts of their convergent styles is creating this market behavior. It's forcing it. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's moving towards this equilibrium. But sitting in the tails is a much less popular technique. It's one that is non-predictive in nature. It's price following. It's reactive in nature. Only a few types of trader and investor specialize in this. Those that um, play with options, um, such as buying calls and buying puts, um, the, the trend followers, uh, the diversified systematic trend followers. About 10% of the participants are participating in the divergent tail region. So during normal market stability, we've got this inequality in participant behavior, 90% doing convergence, 10% doing divergence. Now, what happens when the markets start becoming unpredictable? So all of those convergent participants who have been relying on the predictable nature and the stability of the market find that their models no longer work. Now, this is the key, because what happens here? When their models no longer work, they are forced to exit their positions. And what, what that does is, whilst they, they had a convergent um, method, in exiting in their position, it forces them into a divergent impact. In other words, when they're exiting from their position, it's amplifying trends. Also, we find some of the participants refuse to exit their position and they say to themselves, the market is going to return back to predictability. I'm going to average down with my technique and I'm going to increase the leverage because I know I'm convinced that markets are going to return to that past predictable state. Now, this is this is where leverage starts increasing the toxicity of this environment because as they're embedding leverage into their decisions, ultimately, you might find that they come to margin call city and during a margin call or, or being forced to exit for their position, once again, the impact under leverage is even more significant than the prior traders who took the loss and just accepted that, that they were out. But what we find is that the participant behaviour that was 90% to 10% starts being 80%, 70%, 60%. Meanwhile, on the other side, the, the impacts of divergence is going 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. So in this zero-sum game, we see this wealth flow occur from convergence to divergence. Now, if you can imagine with trend-following programs with their stops, they're, they're always cutting losses short. So they're never getting into this position where they're becoming convergent traders. So you don't get this same sort of move from trend following 10% to become convergent. They stay there 10%. But during this period where the predictive models break and periods of uncertainty arise, we get this wealth flow occurring from convergent participants over to divergent participants. So when you look at 2008 during the GFC, you say to yourself, who were on the other side of those trades when the market, the equity market was tanking? And you say, the trend followers. They're the beneficiaries of that wealth flow. Who was on the other side of the trade during 2022, during the inflation, uh, the significant increase in inflation uh, for the first half of the year? Trend followers, we were on the other side of the trade. And, and what, was, what was causing this magnificent amplification of trends was this altering 
participant behavior, which was not instantaneous. Prices are sticky. The behavior is sort of like in a gradual way, but as it's occurring, it's creating nonlinear amplification because we're going from 90% coming over to 10%. The impact of those 90% suddenly becoming divergent is actually putting a nonlinear power law into those trends. It's amplifying those trends. And of course, the major beneficiaries of all of that are the trend following programs. So why, why do we find, therefore, in a summary, why do we do well during booms and busts? Well, the bottom line is that trading behavior alters when the market refuses to play ball. In other words, when um, traders and investors find that their models no longer work, they are forced to turn away from their models. They've got therefore no guideposts to how they should trade and they revert to their behavioral tendencies. And good old evolution then comes to the fore, fear and greed, fear of missing out, all of these behavioral tendencies start sort of influencing their decision-making as opposed to their predictive models that were saving them from that decision-making um, hiatus that's now occurred because of the behavioral change. So that, that's how I'd like to leave it, Niels, and wrap it up. But um, what do you think? I think that was beautiful. Absolutely. Fantastic. Great um, lesson, masterclass, as usual. <laughs> um, but no, but seriously, this is... This is this is important stuff. Um, even though we do this every week, um, there's just sometimes where we get into the flow. Usually, it's the guest getting into the flow and <laughs> and just explain things, lay them out so so clearly, so simply. Um, and I hope people will go back and maybe rewind um, part of this episode and just listen to that explanation one more time, because if you can really internalize what you just said and laid out. Trend following makes perfect sense. And and more and more people, we hope, that's why we do this every week, we hope we'll see this. Um, it's easy enough to see the results, right? It's easy enough to see that a 60-40 portfolio has been devastated this year. Trend followers are doing great. That's easy. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to say, oh yeah, I definitely need that in my portfolio. But if you understand why it makes sense, and why trend following doesn't only make money when there is, you know, an issue like this year, but actually also makes money when there are boom periods around. It makes even more sense. And um, and I think it is um, human nature that we need to understand the why to take the jump, take the leap. Um, and I think you've laid out a really convincing um, case for that today. So I'm I'm very grateful. Um, and, um, and I think it's a perfect place to kind of, uh, wrap up our conversation, which already is a long one today. Um, but, um, powerful one as well. So thank you, Rich, for, for doing that. Now, I would say that that deserves a rating and review in iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. And I hope all of you listening will agree with that. So head over and leave a rating and review if you wouldn't mind. Um, also, Rich referred many times to the TTU Trend Following Index. Of course, you can find a lot of information in the blog post section uh, where we write up every month a beautiful um, explanation of of uh, how to look at this and, and obviously what's going on. Um, and so um, head over to that. 
Uh, you'll also see some new stuff, actually, some new long-form blog posts that comes out every Sunday where I try to summarize key takeaways um, from the week, uh, midweek episode, so the more broad-based conversations that we have. This is brand new. You should go and check it out. I will eventually also find a way to put up on the website a way where you can just opt into the this quote-unquote, um, uh, the blog post, because I, I do send them out now to most of the people that have opted in in, in historically um, in a um, in a uh, email every Sunday. Um, there are those, um, however, I should say, if you're not receiving it, maybe you just need to go and opt in for something on the website again, because um, we try to be very prudent uh, with the way we send out emails, and we don't send out emails to everyone just because they five years ago, opted into something. We want people to be engaged with the website, with top traders, um, with the um, with the content we produce, um, because that is good practice. It's not good practice to just send out willy-nilly to everyone who's you've ever come across in your life. Uh, we'll leave that to other people. So if for some reason you're not receiving an email from me on a Sunday, um, just go and 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 opt into something, uh, a book or a guide. By the way, I should I should I'm excited because the new ultimate guide is very close to being published, and there's some really good stuff in that. Uh, I think we're above 350 books and some other uh, secret stuff uh, resources that um, that I will uh, announce in that as well. Um, and of course, Rich and I still have a little book to finish, but that's probably more on, on me <laughs> than on Rich. But anyways, we're working through all of these uh, ideas that we get into our head uh, along the way. And uh, I can assure you it's not um, because of lack of, of, uh, of effort and time, but uh, there are so much going on. And, of course, we couldn't do it without you, the listener. So we really appreciate all the support we get, all the questions we get, um, and, of course, all the rating and reviews and the sharing uh, of the content. Uh, that means so much to us, and we're so grateful. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. I should say, by the way, Jamie's back. He should have been here this week, but um, Rich kindly stepped up uh, on short notice as Jim um, had to... Um, change his uh, recording with me. Um, so I appreciate that again, Jim. Uh, oh, sorry, Rich. And um, anyways, he's back next week. And um, so send in your questions. If you have any, info at toptradersonplug.com. From Rich and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.